Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, um, and my mom had dementia for 30 years, and that's why I now do what I do. I think it's really important that we have these tough conversations and um, spread our knowledge and our ideas and thoughts of what it's like to live with dementia, um, from those diagnosed to those that care for them, as well as professionals. Now, if you enjoyed the music um, that kicked off our show, it's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, featuring Maya Dore as the singer. You can go ahead and download that on any of your favorite music platforms. Um, And again, for people who are new, uh, we're always getting new listeners. We are really about sound information, not just sound bites. That's why we have an hour-long show, so that we can all talk authentically about the topic of the day. And today we're going to be talking about right to die and the Alzheimer's living will. So we invite you to call in if you have any questions or comments at 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. I also want to thank our audience. I love doing that every single time because it's your likes, your clicks, your shares that have gotten us acknowledged around the world. And what's important with that is I really believe that we need to share these stories and we need to hear what other people are doing and build a sense of community collaboration and comfort if we're going to win this battle against dementia. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I want to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. I just thoroughly believe in these groups. They're for people uh, with dementia and their care partners to gather. There's over, I believe, 900 of them now in the U.S., but sadly to say, I believe there's only about 40 that are doing virtual cafes, and you can go to Memory Cafe Directory and find out where those are, and you don't, you know, they don't have to be in your backyard anymore, so feel free to uh, to check those out. Um, and in line with that, I'm just going to uh, give a shout out to Artist Senior Living in Woodbury. We're going to be starting a new um, memory cafe called the Artist Way, and that will be starting uh, September 16th. And if you want more information, just reach out to me on that. I would love to give that to you. Also have to uh, give a big, huge thank you to Coral Health. They are giving away uh, free apps of their Music First and Coral Faith uh, to anybody during during this COVID uh, epidemic that we're going through. So uh, you can just go to Coral, C-O-R-O, uh, health.com, that's C-O-R-O, health.com. And right at the top, you can click on uh, getting those apps for Music First and Coral Faith. Uh, just have two more to go here. One is the GAIN uh, Alzheimer's trial. Uh, you can still sign up to be part of that. It's, uh, you have to be diagnosed with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, be 55 to 80 years old, and have a, a care partner, a family member, or friend who's willing to uh, go to study visits with you and also help uh, with documentation and medication. So uh, you can go to GAIN, G A I N, trial 
T-R-I-A-L.com forward slash E-N. And then I want you to hear from the Foot Bar Walker. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The footbar walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the footbar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The footbar walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's the thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the footbar walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the footbar walker. So with that, let's go ahead and get started on this uh, interesting topic of right to die and the Alzheimer's disease living will. I'm happy to have two co-hosts with me. One is Michael Ellenbogen. And um, Michael, I'm just going to have you go ahead and introduce yourself, if you don't mind. Sure. Thanks for having me, Lori. My name is Michael Ellenbogen, and I'm an international dementia advocate and connector. I am also living with this disease now for roughly uh, 20 years. Wonderful. Thank you. And my other co-host today is Kathy Braxton. Kathy, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Lori, for having me today. Um, My name is Kathy, and I have been in the long-term care, specifically dementia, um, workforce for over 25 years, working with caregivers and professionals and patients themselves. And what I've been doing for the last seven years is focusing on um, communication, specifically with personal and professional caregivers, and helping them to learn better ways to communicate with persons who are living with dementia by using the concepts of improv and empathy. Wonderful. Thank you. And our guest today is Henry Kutcher, and he has had decades of hands-on day-to-day experiences with memory care, which resulted in him writing a book that's been recognized around the world called For Better or For Worse. And um, his his critical goal is really to enable um, a natural Alzheimer's disease process versus this, what he believes is unnecessary prolonging of life. And he also was awarded the State of Florida Assisted Living Facility Administrator of the Year uh, in 1991. So welcome, Henry. Thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you for having me, Laurie. Great pleasure to be here. Well, to start out, I always ask every um, every guest that we have if they have been personally touched by Alzheimer's disease in their family or circle of friends. Well, I began with a handicapped son, which I guess was a good benchmark to start thinking of care, compassionate care, and options and needs, choices, etc. And that was the, the footprint. But from there, my wife being a nurse and I uh, got into the assisted living, before it was assisted living, when it was in the home back in 1984. So we spent three decades taking care of residents, and I spent many decades taking care primarily of those with memory care. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Um, let's talk first about, you know, what made you decide to set out to write the Alzheimer's-specific living will? And, you know, um, a lot of times I think people don't don't think of needing something so specific per, per disease, but why why did you think that it was important? Well, actually, when I started this process, I didn't know that I would ultimately end out with a legal document. I was taking care of residents day in and day out, and I had many encounters with residents that, I guess, experientially was, why do we do this as a society? Why do we intervene? Why do we get involved this way? And so I could share some of those examples, but ultimately two gals from the Boston area, two daughters, asked me to intervene 
in changing the way society took care of residents in a facility. And it was a staggering challenge because I recall calling hospice on that day uh, and they said there's not much we can do. The way society has designed the paperwork and the end-of-life care is the way it is. So those two gals, those two daughters were the beginning of a significant change. And even at that point, I had not decided to write a document. I was just overwhelmed with how society had not answered the needs, had not provided choices, had not provided options for all these residents and families. Okay. You had said you could kind of give us some examples of, um, of, of maybe some things that you've seen people go through or statements that they've made about the process? Yes. The one I start with is, again, a footprint of the man, Homer, came into my office. He sat across from me, as he did many days. He looked up at me, and you have to picture a man of six foot three with huge hands. He looks at me and says, life is more than taking a breath. He covered his face and began to sob. Sobbed so loudly, I closed the door, shut the shades, and for 20 minutes, this man sobbed. And it moved me intensely to go through that experience, knowing that he could not affect the change. He was trapped, and the future was in somebody else's hands. That was one wow. of the things. I could give you others if you'd like. Sure. Go ahead and give us a couple of more, and then I'm, I'm going to pull in uh, Michael and, and Kathy for some, some thoughts, too. Well, another time I walked into my nurse's office, and we had this lady sitting there, and she was probably late stage six, uh, early seven, and she had no concept, none at all, as to what was occurring. But my nurse had doctor's orders to give her a finger stick because of insulin uh, requirements. And as she stuck that finger, I looked at my nurse and said, Sue, why do we do this to this person in this stage of life? She said, because it's doctor's orders. I said, well... Is that what we should be doing? Do you think she has a clue as to why we're doing it? No. I said, so, Sue, what would happen if we didn't do this today? Well, if the insulin level wasn't right, she would probably go into coma. And I remember my reaction. So don't you think our creator prepared the human body to pass on without pain way before we have pharmaceutical companies? Is this what we should be doing? He said, it's the doctor's orders. That was one of my, another moving time for me. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's those kinds of cases. I had one where a nebulizer was being given to a gal that was in stage seven, I recall. And she, the nurse, would have to, I won't say coerce, but convince her to hold this nebulizer in her mouth for 10 to 12 minutes. Again. Why, why are we doing this? Why are we trying to improve the lungs when the person has no clue of family, relationships, um, doesn't eat, she needs to be fed? So, it was, again, another example of why, why, why. Yep. Um, Michael, I know you have some feelings on all of this. What are, what are your thoughts about um, having a, a living will and being able to to speak up that it's it's time. I'm I'm okay going. Absolutely. Uh I I'd have to tell you this is so dear to my heart. Uh just yesterday I was assisting a woman who was uh dealing with something similar with her husband and uh uh it, it's a complete nightmare what the poor woman's going through, but it all starts by have to having a real great advanced directive. Uh so many people talk about wanting this but even though they want it they really never got their loved one to create an advanced directive and advanced directives I believe are very different for people with dementia than the average person because it covers things that become very specific because a person who's living with dementia unfortunately by the time they require that intervention they no longer can speak up for themselves in many cases or 
have that mindset. So it, it's really important that you have a very good advanced directive. And I apologize, uh, Henry, I've never seen yours. Uh, I'd, I'd very be interested in uh, taking a look at it. But I have one myself, and it's like 32 pages long, believe it or not. Uh, and mine also has a doctor uh, who has signed off on it. But in order for my wife to do this, she really needs to understand that I guided her to be able to make the right decisions on my behalf when the time comes. Because, of course, I may not be able to do that. So I think that's probably the key to the success of this is to have the right kind of advanced directive. But what's even more important Depending on what you're specifically asking for the person to do, do the laws in that particular state qualify you to be able to take that action of what you're requesting? And that's another whole problem, uh, sadly to say, because in most states, you cannot have and assist in taking your life. Uh, and it really becomes the responsibility of the person who's living with the disease to be able to act on it. So it becomes very complicated. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add in uh, to or comment on his his comment, Henry? Yes, uh, I, I certainly do. So that is why I provided a document. It's a legal document, and it was headed off by an attorney, uh, the top phrase of it, to give an intention as to what you're trying to do. But I give examples in there to be careful to be on the lookout for. Um, And I can go over it at this point. Um, It's specific to environments. It's specific to choices. It's it's when a particular need arises, that healthcare surrogate, that that durable power of attorney with healthcare decision-making possibilities, they're empowered to say, no, mom, dad, grandpa, spouse, whatever it may be, said when I get to this point, is it adding quality or is it prolonging? And each decision is based upon that. I recall the day that I, I wrote it, I, could, uh, I uh, brought it into the doctor that particular morning. He happened to be sitting in my nurse's office. I said, Doc, uh, did you take a look at this? And he read it for two, three minutes. I stood in anxiety waiting, and he looked up at me, and his quote was, where the hell have you been for the last 20 years, close quote. I was in (laughs) shock. Okay? And I had written in some things that were medical, which could bring it to 32 pages or more. No insult to you. It's just you start writing in medical. He says, Henry, you can go ad infinitum. You just cannot write down enough medical conditions that could exist. Is I suggest those few medical things that you have written in that you might want to expand upon, you remove them totally and you allow the person that's making that decision to say, is this quality or prolonging? Is this natural dying process or prolonging? So that gives the person that's in charge an opportunity to discuss with the nurse, the doctor, family members, is this prolonging or is this taking a, a natural process? And that's why it was reduced from what I had to a much shorter form. And at some point here, I could go over them specifically so that you'll see how I try and address what actually happens in assisted living and nursing home care that many people just aren't aware of it because they're not there 10, 12 hours exactly. a day. Exactly. I want to go to Kathy and just kind of get her thoughts, and then maybe we can go into the the will itself. Um, Kathy, I don't know what your beliefs are on this topic, and it doesn't make any difference if you agree or disagree, because that's what we're all about here is is voicing opinions and um, getting people to to think. Yeah. So my experience has been a little bit different. Um, My experience with the death and dying process has been mostly with working with the patient and the family members. And interestingly enough, what I have found to be a trend is that oftentimes family members um, 
I find that family members that are not necessarily involved with the care, they haven't been involved with their family for a while, their loved one for a while, they tend to opt for the prolonging rather than the quality of life option. And they, and I, what I've seen is that they opt for that prolonging because internally they have their own agendas of guilt. Um, that's the experience that I've seen when I've counseled with family members is that when we talk and we talk enough and we get nitty-gritty and they're really willing to be vulnerable about why they were chosen to be the power of attorney to make these decisions and work with doctors, why they're choosing to prolong and use feeding tubes and other advanced technologies to keep a person alive, it tended to boil down to the fact that they were very guilty about either not having a great relationship with that parent or having unresolved conflict. And so they, their emotions about themselves and their own discomfort often tended to um, guide their choice for that loved one to prolong the life. And that was really, those are really difficult conversations to have with people. Those are really difficult conversations to listen to because as a social worker, working with that patient day in and day out, you see the suffering, you see the loss of functionality, you see the quality of life diminishing to where there's very little, um, there's very little quality at all. And so the prolonging of that process was, was very hard to watch when families would opt for that. The other thing I just wanted to say is um, I think this might have been uh, Michael that commented on, you know, state by state things are different. It can be very complicated. I had a case where a woman decided um, in her last year of life that she wanted to donate her body to science. It was something that was really out of her uh, comfort zone, but it was something she felt really important to do. And in the state that we were working in at the time, it was uh, a free service. Uh, medical schools were willing to take uh, the cadaver after her passing and wanted to use it for, you know, advanced science studies. And in the process of us putting all of the paperwork together, the state changed the law. And they changed it from, from becoming a free service to becoming a service that actually costs money because of transportation. And because of that, um, her family opted for her not to do the donation of her body, but they also chose not to tell her that at the same time. So it was a very convoluted, very difficult situation where you're looking at someone advocating for themselves for end-of-life decisions, and not just end-of-life, but after-life decisions. Um, but the family themselves just couldn't bring themselves to tell her that they weren't going to pay the money, that that service was going to get um, pulled from her and, and that that wasn't going to happen, even though those were her final wishes. And it was a very difficult situation for me to be in as a social worker because I needed to honor the patient, but also wanted to honor the wishes of the family as well. So it was a very ethical ethically very difficult challenge for me to be in at the time, something I don't want to stand very proud of, um, but it is definitely, I think, something that's out there a lot. And, again, it really does come down to agendas for the family member and um, the way in which people communicate with each other, what they want, what they don't want, and, and how willing are we to give people and, and abide to what they choose. So, you know, I hope that my perspective on this enlightens somebody, does something, not sure if I agree or disagree, but certainly have worked with enough residents in my time um, to see that when they've gotten to end of life, I am, I am personally very comfortable knowing that I was able to spend months, years with them, learning about who they were, cherishing the life that they lived, and knowing that they lived a full life and that this is end of life and that quality, whether that's weeks or months, definitely, to me, trumps over prolonging that process. Okay, wonderful. Um, comments from you, Henry? Yes, I absolutely agree with Kathy about families prolonging and because of guilt. I absolutely agree. And these two gals, I call them, maybe I should say daughters from the Boston area, they came into an environment where we, without family participation at this point, we as a society were saying, 
do everything you can to keep this person going through the end stage and you get into a seating situation, how you even get them to sit down, how you have to present the food so quickly, how you start asking them to open their mouth, and then after two, three questions of opening their mouth, then you insert the mashed potatoes, which might be their favorite food, and you're commenting on that for the process, and then you have to say, please swallow, please swallow, just for me, why don't you swallow? This whole process, and these two daughters said, Henry, our mother of 38 years, a nurse, requested time and again that when I get to the point they're just prolonging, I don't want that intervention. I want to die naturally. So those two daughters basically just said, could you allow her to choose the food? When she looks at the food, the presented food, it's there. It looks good. And she doesn't want it. Don't try and coerce her to eat. If she's hungry, she'll sit and eat. And she did. But if she doesn't want to, let her walk away. Let her go. Let's stop this coercion. And it was from that day that I went home and said, we as a society are prolonging. We as a society are enabling. And nobody has come up with an alternative. Uh, Three o'clock in the morning, January 9th, 2009, I woke up, looked at the clock, and I said, what am I doing standing up here? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm not a morning person. <laughs> and the message clear to me was, get up and write a living will specific to Alzheimer's disease. And that's how it happened. Well, let's hear, let's hear what's in this living will because it, and how, how it's different. Um, because I do think it's important. Um, you know, more and more people are getting... Uh, diagnosed with a form of dementia, more and more people are, are I think, starting to have this conversation. We're hearing about, um, you know, compassionate care and right to choice and all kinds of things. And again, not everyone's going to agree on this, and I'm not, I'm not expecting them to. Uh, this isn't a show about trying to coerce anyone into this uh, belief, but I think it's a topic that needs to be heard. And then people can make make their own choices. Um, so go ahead, Henry, and kind of explain the the living will to us, if you don't mind. Yes, and again, I want to reiterate: I'm merely trying to provide an option, choices. I saw the need, and then I said, okay, let's give these families an opportunity. Let's get these residents that have dementia in the earlier stages say. This is how I want it to proceed, and I want to give that advance directive. So Mm -hmm. my attorney friend immediately answered with a phrase that he said needed to go to the very top of the document. This living will is intended to broaden rights, he said, put it in quotes, rather than limit rights as provided in statutes. He said across the 50 states, if Someone wants to contest it. A son, daughter, anybody says, oh, I don't think dad meant this way. Oh, I don't think grandma meant this. He said, when you put that phrase in there to broaden rights, it becomes more inclusive. So we started out with that. It is an addendum or it can stand alone. So if somebody has a standard living will, which most people do, in this you would just write, this is a, it says addendum, you just add the date of your existing living will. And then the next section, because it is global, we can talk about different countries, provinces, regions of the world. It's just addressing who you are. And then I put in that my dying not be prolonged under the circumstances set forth below. And I have many, many whereas. And I'll read them. And, again, it's to give a basis for this living will to the family, to the doctor. Alzheimer's disease is a progressive and degenerative brain disease, whereas Alzheimer's disease is terminal. So by saying that, you're saying, okay, it's going to get worse. I know it's going to end in death. Whereas it is a medical fact that the brain is central to human beings' potential for quality of life. So if I don't have a good brain, we're questioning the quality of life towards those end stages, in the seventh stage especially. Whereas 
I know that Alzheimer's disease cannot be absolutely determined without an autopsy. Well, you could say United States, UK, some other uh, industrialized nations, medically industrialized, uh, can today pinpoint it. But since this is global, I keep it in there so that you can't have a family that, well, we're not sure mom has Alzheimer's. It might be another kind. Actually, at the very top, I include the words other dementias so that it, mm. it is more broader than just the specific disease. I accept the known and medical the known medical and psychiatric assessments to determine whether or not I have Alzheimer's disease. Absolute assurance not required. So somebody says, Well, how can you be sure that mom or dad has it or my wife has it or my husband has it, whatever it is? Well, we're saying the person that signed this living will, they said that you didn't have to absolutely prove because the technology may or may not be available or the cost to prove it might be uh, a bit much for some families. So then I went on and I said, we're going to use the global deterioration scale for assessment of primary degenerative dementia as the benchmark. It's the footprint. So that is accepted around the world. So now when two doctors say, per that assessment tool, that this person has dementia and they're in the late six stages or in the sixth, seventh stage, it usually occurs in the late six where this would get implemented, then the remainder of the living will or the directive portion, because the, the first part is really saying, I accept this, I know this, this is the benchmark. But then the directive comes into play. And it says, number one, all decisions are to be based on quality of life, not prolonging. Number two, concerning any ethical challenges to my living will related to new treatments, medications, procedures, I insist the medical profession be able to clearly state with a preponderance of evidence based on then current knowledge that my Alzheimer's disease can be reversed prior to any decision against my living will. Well, that means that you could come in three years, five years, ten years, two months from now and say, we have just found a medication, an injection, a procedure, a food that's going to stop the progression, the degeneration of the disease. And I so wish that that will occur because I've lost relatives through Alzheimer's disease. However, if it's me and it becomes a choice of that person, if I'm late six stages, early seventh stage, and they say we can't reverse it, we can stop it, I don't, I've told my family, I don't want to be kept at late six stage, early seventh stage for a year, two, five, seven. So that's why I added that particular section. Any questions at this point? Because I have others, but you may want to have some questions on these, on these items I've already covered. Sure. Michael, do you have any comments so far? I do, but I think I'm going to hold off because I'd like to hear the whole thing first before I make my comments. Okay. Uh, Kathy, okay. how about you? The same, the same, yes. Okay. So keep on going, Henry. <laughs> We're all ears. Okay. Well, this next one is the very most difficult section, and it was based on those two daughters from Boston. I consider usage of food supplements in my dietary regimen as artificial intervention and undesirable. Now, remember, before I go on, this is typically in the seventh stage. We're not talking uh, years before that. To, con to continue in that section, I consider mechanically altered or texture-modified food as acceptable. However, when I cannot, or do not recognize, desire, or understand the need for the prepared and presented food or drink as beneficial in sustaining my life, I desire no coercion to feed me be done. Any questions before I go on to the next section? I don't have any questions. I, I just want to make a comment. I think that it's, um, I think what you're doing is fantastic. I think what you're doing is you're definitely, for lack of a better term, covering all of your bases because it's unfortunate that we've gotten to the point where we have to literally spell all of this out for everybody, for our families, so that there isn't any room for misinterpretation. 
for what you truly want. It's, it's a wonderful document, I think, that you're, you've put together so far that I've heard. Um, I guess my, my, only, my only comment is it's, just, it's so discouraging on a, a care provider level that we have to go to these links to write this out in such great detail simply because we've had so many issues with um, advanced directives in the past and how they've been misinterpreted or twisted or turned or families argue about what this means versus what that means. And, you know, the interpretations oftentimes are so loose simply because they don't see the bigger picture, which is quality of life. And so I think you're doing a fantastic job of, of really having to spell it all out because that's where we've gotten and that's a sad thing. That's just a really sad thing to me. Mm-hmm. Good comments. Okay. Keep going, Henry. Okay. The next one, it says, medical procedures, medical treatments, prescribed medications, and therapy. Colon, open, open it up. Not limited to physical, occupational, speech, and respiratory. Close. Interventions are not necessarily beneficial to my life and Alzheimer's disease will likely not allow me to respond with appropriate interaction to receive the short or long-term benefits. The overall desired positive value of the intervention may not exist. My concern is that many therapy treatments require a change. This this, uh, comment right now is not written in, but my concern is that many Therapy treatments require a change in behavior or pattern of activity. So if you have a therapist that's trying to teach someone in seven stage how to pick up their foot to, to avoid a fall, it's great for the therapy company on the income basis. But about 30 seconds after they walk away, the person does not remember how to pick up their foot. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you, if you go through a hospital discharge, because you fell and hit your head, and they sent you out for a potential concussion, and you come back, and maybe you had a stroke, maybe you didn't have a concussion, and the doctor appropriately says, gee, we need to have a swallow test, either before they leave the hospital or after, depending if they're admitted or the emergency room, and the therapist comes in and says, yes, that stroke affected how they swallow, and we're going to come in on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we're going to try and retrain them on how to swallow. Well, I think it's admirable that we want to help that person on how to improve their swallowing pattern. But from a practical standpoint, from a holistic standpoint, it is medical, but it's not social. It's just not uh, psychologically uh, acceptable from most family members that you're going to retrain dad on how to swallow. Mm-hmm. Because as soon as a therapist walks out, they're going to swallow inappropriately and maybe get some food into their lungs, and they may pass on from pneumonia. But that is, is it prolonging or is it quality? Those are just comments on that particular mm-hmm. one. The other one is I request that all parties guard against interventions that may be considered exploitation of personal and government financial resources, not sufficiently considering quality of life versus prolonging, therapy after therapy, companies that want the cash flow for four or five, six thousand dollars a month, extra for another couple of months, and it's not adding quality. It's, 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 uh, in, in the industry, sometimes they call it closing the back door. They don't want their residents to pass on because it's a cash flow issue. It's sad, but it's reality. And the next mm-hmm. one is, I consider non-intervention to be humane, allowing the natural dying process. And I close out with, I consider palliative care as appropriate, including medications, to affect positive behavioral responses. That's how I close it. Okay. Michael, you said you have some comments, but you want to wait until he's done. So why don't you go ahead and, and um, comment away? Okay, great. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. Uh, does a physician need to sign off on that once the person or patient 
creates this document? Yes. So what occurs, Michael, is that once the resident uh, signs this three-page document, it is distributed to family, hopefully, distributed to or sent to the primary care physician, the neurologist, given to if if it's in a a long-term care environment, to the nurse, et cetera. And it basically says, when I get to the sixth stage, seventh stage, the doctor, two doctors, and you have a primary care that visits, and you have a neurologist, two physicians say, this patient of mine has arrived at this stage. It then implements everything that I've stated. Okay, but, but that doesn't, doesn't have to be. But that doesn't have to be signed off beforehand, is what you're saying. It it's only done at the time when they're ready to do this. Take action. Uh, the take action is when you sign and say, "This is my advanced directive for everybody for the future." It gets implemented in the late stage six. Typically, I say six, but it's usually the late stage of six and seven. So. The document is a it is a part of your advanced directive file, and the decision process begins when the two doctors sign on it in sixth, seventh stage. Okay. And what is the natural dying method that you are requesting to be carried out for a peaceful death? I. There is no method. It is saying to the caregivers, to all those that are involved in one's care, is this procedure, is this treatment, is this medication, is this process? So it's a question each time to have a choice and an option. And, but the baseline is, if it's adding, if it's prolonging and not adding to quality, no nurse, we don't want it. No doctor, we don't want it. So if you come back from a hospital and you've had that, that uh, swallow test and it's been indicated that you are not swallowing correctly, is it going to prolong your life to spend four weeks, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, on how to learn to, re, how to relearn how to swallow? And the family member, the doctor, the nurse could easily say, no, there's no chance that this person's going to relearn how to swallow. So let's bypass this therapy, and let's allow the natural dying process. So you're basically saying at that point that they should no longer be fed? No, 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 no. This was a specific to a swallowing test. So my, my experience was that this person can no longer swallow because they had a stroke. And society is attempting to teach them, reteach them on how to swallow. So to me, and that's why the person has a choice. So the doctor could say, no, this, this, is, this is okay. It's not prolonging. This is quality because they need very little assistance in retraining. The, uh, they're able to learn. They're still able to learn how to swallow. Another situation might be, No, this person cannot relearn how to swallow, so therefore it is prolonging. It is not allowing the natural. So those people are empowered with this document to sit and say, gee, is it prolonging or is that inequality? There is no absolute answer to each person's unique experience, medical experience. Does that answer it or is that confusing, Michael? Well, I'm still a little confused because – they still could get food done intravenously, they, you know, uh, and I understand you're saying not to do that, but the, the problem you have is if a person is in an institution like an assisted living, they have to continue trying to feed people like that no matter what. It's one thing that's, if, that's, you're, that's, if you're in the home privately, sure, you can get away with doing, I think, that, but – not no. when you're in assisted living, because there's laws that govern what they must do. No. This is a legal document, that, and, and so I, I, I appreciate your perspective. My experience has shown that the doctors in the United States 
rates across the board, nursing homes, assisted living, memory care specific, are welcoming this document as an advanced directive. And to date, there has been no state, no government agency, no supervisory agency, nobody that said, we don't want to follow this advanced directive. The opposite has occurred where the doctor is saying, thank you, thank you for helping me through this difficult process with the family. That's been my, my experience. And Kathy may have some others that she's in contact with them on a regular basis, but that's been my experience. Well, yeah, I don't yeah. know anybody who's used yours actually, so I can't speak to yours, but I can tell you, in fact, it, it just happened in another state about three months ago. Somebody had an assisted, you know, specifically requesting things like this, and the law shot it down. It, they were not allowed to act on it. Uh, again, I, this was not using yours, I'm sure. It was a, a different one that was created by somebody else. But I will tell you, I am working on this issue here with a team of lawyers trying to address this in the United States, and I can tell you, my assisted uh, advanced directives would not qualify in the United States. I am still well, trying to, to get go, the go. legal okay. aspect approved, and I am finding that that is harder to do than I ever anticipated. And, and that's probably very accurate, and maybe I, I need to be more thankful for my uh, estate planning elder law friend who is an attorney in Florida who said, write this sentence down at the beginning so this will help you in any legal challenge, I'll re and I'll repeat it, and it's not my sentence. This living will is intended to broaden rights, and he asked me to put quotes around broaden rights rather than limit rights as provided in statutes. So he is saying right out legally up front, if you want to contest it, I signed, this person signed it, and they want to have it more extensive than limited. And so far, we've had no challenges in any state. Okay. <clears throat> well, and internationally. Um, Kathy, I'd like to hear your thoughts. I can't believe this time has flown by. We have like 12 minutes left. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, um, yeah, I wrote down two things. So, first of all, I just have a question. I know that in what you were reading, you were talking about stages six and seven. And uh, my question is, I know that everybody, a lot of physicians that I've talked to, caregivers, so on, they have different interpretations of the stages of dementia and specifically Alzheimer's disease. And, and a lot of times I hear the stages one, two, and three, right, early, middle, and late. Um, and then, yes, Correct. I've also read Correct. about, you know, stages one through seven where they're broken down even more specifically. Do you have in this written down, like, um, an operational definition of what yes. stage six and seven looks like for you? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I was gonna actually, say that actually, Kathy, I've actually included it. I didn't mean to interrupt her. Mm. It's actually included in the three-page document, so there is no outside uh, potential for discussion as to, well, did they mean, no, yeah. it's explicitly <laughs> in the three-page document. Yeah, uh, again, I, this is why I said what you said, what I said earlier is, you know, it, 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 it's a great document. It's so unfortunate that we have to do this and we have to literally spell it out for people because there is still so much um, disagreement amongst you know, stages, you know, certain people believe in one through three, others believe in one through seven. And so we have to literally spell it out for people. Um, my other question is, and this is something I've worked with more so in regards to the dying process, not prolonging life versus um, uh, quality of life. But I'm just curious, do you have a document or in this document that you speak of, do you have anything in there that talks about how you want to die? Meaning, do you want family surrounding you? Do you want to be alone? Do you want music playing? Do you want? Would you like someone there reading the Bible to you? Do you not? Do you have anything in this document, or have you ever considered a document where you spell that out to people? You know, this is how I want my last hours to be. Because everybody is very specific and very different about that, and I know that in my own experience, I have interjected what I would want into someone else's dying process, 
and then found out later on that was exactly the opposite of what they would have chosen if they could have spoken to me. Again, it was a learning process on my end, but and it's oftentimes something we do is we can only take our own perspectives that we have on it and interject it into the uh, process at hand, the person that we're working with, especially if they can no longer verbalize to us. Um, so that was a mistake I made on my part was, you know, playing classical music when, in fact, they didn't want that at all. They wanted the crooners. So a uh, big learning experience for me, but would have really benefited more as a social worker in the traditional field if I'd had that information for people, from, you know, about them, for them to put those things into place. Yeah, I, it's not in the document. I have found uh, over the years that uh, when we ask families to uh, write out what their loved one, mother, father, aunt, is all about whether they were into music or bocce ball, baseball, whatever it may be. In that activity, two to three page uh, life enrichment survey questionnaire, that we find out who they really are, what their likes are. And then mm -hmm. at the end stage, I've never uh, experienced uh, other than someone going to that document, which is, I'm not sure you call it a document, but that questionnaire saying, Here's what she's enjoyed. Let's assist through this end uh, day, two days. Um, and nice. But it is not in this legal document. And I, okay. I think it would be difficult to, to write in. Yeah, yeah. It's probably a completely different document altogether. I was just curious what your opinion is on having something like that as well. Yeah, I, I, I think that they have sufficient information in the life enrichment questionnaire process to effect a very peaceful passing. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much. Wonderful. Um, Henry, um, before we, uh, we have to wrap up, we've got about eight minutes, I want to talk about your book, For Better or Worse, and what people can expect to find in that. Well, the book is a result of my interfacing working with husbands and wives for nearly 30 years and I found that they need I guess a partner through this process through this care decision process and so my book really discusses the happenings I'm not sure this word discusses but uh, I share stories throughout those stages, and the caregiver can usually relate to one of them where they are in that caregiving process, very early, mid, late, and it, typically those that have read it and called me back and we've talked about it said, wow, I'm not alone. Somebody else has gone through this. And so it empowers them in that decision process. And then I also found over the years that it is incredibly confusing for the caregiver to understand assisted living, companion mm -hmm. services, home health agencies that are medical, home health agencies that are not medical, nursing homes that have a wing for memory care, independent living where you have uh, a home health agency with an office downstairs. And so as a partner, as a going kind of a, on the journey with the caregiver, I've tried to explain those entities in ways where they can combine them, but they combine them for the specific needs of their loved one. It's not a generic, well, there's an assisted living and they're going to handle my needs. Maybe the most expensive one is the terrible one. Maybe the least expensive one is the best. Maybe the one with incredible security is needed, and maybe the one in incredible security is an absolute waste of money. So I try and just partner with that caregiver to say, who is my loved one? What are their specific needs? And then I discuss all those entities and say, okay, bring them together, and now you can feel empowered as you go in and meet with people and talk to people. Um, I discuss support groups and just just the whole, uh, the letting go. So it's called, for better or for worse, letting go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. Um, Michael, any last comments as we get ready to wrap up here? The only thing I would like, if, uh, Henry, you're willing to share that with me, I would love to run that by the uh, legal team that I have. Uh, I'm, I'm working with Arnold and Porter and uh, the world-renowned Thedius Pope. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's uh, the person who's uh, the key expert in the entire world on this particular issue. Uh, because if you have something that is actually what you're saying, it, it, it would be fantastic. Okay, and after the program, we can uh, get together and you can uh, get me your email and we can chat about it. Absolutely. Wonderful. Kathy, any last comments from you? Um, I'm just I'm just happy to see someone putting this kind of stuff out there. I hope that you can reach as many people as possible and reach them in a time where the person with dementia can still help in making these decisions for themselves. I think that's one of the biggest issues I've run into is uh, we think about this as caregivers, families, Think about it too late, and uh, by the time that's on their mind, the person that is, you know, most important, which is the person who's in the dying process, can't contribute anymore. So um, I guess my only last question, if you could answer it really quickly, would be, you know, have you found any success in, have you found any words that are very successful in trying to help families come to grips with this and, and putting this together by putting their own agendas to the side? You know, what have you said or done that has helped someone convince, helped someone that it is quality of life and not prolonging that is most important? That's an excellent question. Uh, I don't know that I've come up upon any particular approach, but mm -hmm. I have found that everybody that either has the condition or is caregiver or a relative of dearly wants quality, but they want to have a directive as to what to do when that time comes. So the, mm -hmm. this, for the person, when I agreed with you saying prolonging out of guilt, but they would then say, if I, I had this discussion over and over, oh, thank you. I won't have to go through this guilt because dad has told me what he wants. That has triggered such a burden off my shoulders. So thank nice. you for this document. Nice, nice, beautiful. Thank you. Good. Gary, so if, I, oh, go ahead, Henry. No, it's, it's just something we can't do generic. We can do something generically, but we want to just provide an environment for choices. We want to provide an environment for options. And the guilt is horrendous in the caregivers and daughters and sons that, for me, from Florida, fly back to Chicago, and they just didn't want to leave. But once they had this piece of paper, they said, thank you. My dad has told me what he wants. I can go in peace. Yep. Um, one question I wanted to ask is, because I think this comes up a lot, too, is people who have already been diagnosed, um, can they legally still sign this document? Because I, I think that that's a question that, that people have all the time. Yes, absolutely yes. Now, there's, there's a nuance. There's, there's a fine line. So I'm not going to give you uh, a line in the sand. But even a person that has significant dementia has days where they're going to tell you please, please, don't allow, or they'll, they'll have some great mornings, especially the mornings rather than the afternoons. And so, especially if a family member knows, this is what they've told me, this is what they've expressed for year after year, for day after day. So find one of those great days and say to the husband, to the wife, to the daughter, saying to dad, would you like to have quality of life? Would you like to prolong your life? No, no, don't prolong life. You can have the document signed. If somebody in the family wants to contest it, I suppose they could. But because somebody's been diagnosed with dementia, is no limitation whatsoever. Okay, great. Well, in wrapping up here, I want to make sure people get your website, which is alzheimerslivingwill.com. That's alzheimerslivingwill.com, and there they can purchase the 
living will document, or they can email you at info at Alzheimer's disease living will.com. And um, you can also purchase the book for better or worse. Uh, it's available on Amazon as well. So thank you so much. What a great um, conversation, Kathy, Michael, I appreciate you co-hosting with me and adding so much value to the show. And Henry, again, thank you for your time. Keep up the great work. And I can't wait to see what you and Michael come up with because uh, Michael is quite the little go-getter. I know you are too. Have a great week, everyone. Bye now. Thank Thanks. you. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Hey everybody, Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.